Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365 day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and a very warm and especially warm welcome to this lockdown episode of On The Constant. I'm Luke Moore. I'm Andy Brassel. Andy, how the devil are you, chap? I know you've been a bit under the weather, so I thought I'd just check in with you before we get into the the meat and drink of the show. Are you feeling better? Yeah, yeah. Onwards and upwards, Lukey. Um, Of course, I was revitalised by uh, the company of the renewed Jules Breach on Tuesday on Football Ramble Daily, which which definitely helped. But um, plenty of interesting stuff to chew through today. Absolutely. And if, you know, they're, they're, we shouldn't really be talking about things being infectious, but the only thing more infectious than coronavirus is the Jules Breach enthusiasm, um, which we welcome. And it's good to see her back on her feet as well. Um, and pleased to hear you're feeling a bit better too. You sound a lot better. So good stuff. All right. Um, unfortunately, we have to start with some sad news uh, this week. Um, former Marseille president Papa Diouf um, has sadly passed away from coronavirus. I mean, it was only a week or two ago we were talking about ex-Real Madrid president Lorenzo Sanz sadly suffering the same fate. But plenty of our listeners, and I include myself in this, wouldn't have been overly familiar with the Papa Diouf story. Um, he, he, he was listed in, in, the, in the obituaries as, as ex-Marseille president. But the story he had to come from where he came from to, 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 to reach where he eventually reached was is, an, is actually quite a remarkable one Andy and I wonder if you can give us a quick potted history of his life and what he was able to achieve and how he did it yeah well um, he's uh, born in Chad to a, a Senegalese family and um, he grew up in in Senegal came over to France as a, a teenager which was always the plan uh, because his his dad was very uh, French loyalist and um What he didn't imagine, I think, is that uh, his son, who studied political science at Aix-en-Provence, would go on afterwards to uh, become a journalist. Um, when he was at the University uh, um, Aix-en-Provence, he worked as a postman as well. And um, he worked uh, with uh, a guy called uh, Tony Salvatore as well. Um, who invited him to contribute uh, to the football section because he knew he was a massive football fan of a newspaper called Le Marseillais, which was actually a communist newspaper. And yeah. that was the point at which Pap Diouf started to become a journalist. Now, his, his, his dad never lived long enough to, to, to see him um, start producing his own articles and get his own bylines in, but his, his mum did, which was a huge... Uh, sense of, of pride for him. Now, l- later on, he um, ended up uh, working for a, a, a daily paper called uh, Le Sport, which was conceived as a sort of rival to Le Keep. Now, it didn't last very long at all, um, but it really worked for him in the sense that um, b- because 
he was working for a, a newspaper profile. And because by this point, he'd been working around the Olympique de Marseille for a while. Um, it meant that um, he was familiar with a lot of the players. He had a lot of good relationships with them. And actually, it was uh, one of his, his, his mates, um, Joseph Antoine Bell, who you might remember as, as, as being the Cameroonian goalkeeper. Mm. Um, he was Marseille's goalkeeper as well. And uh, him and him and Duff were were mates, and um, it was it was actually Joseph Antoine Bell who suggested to him, "Look, come on, you're 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 personable, you're approachable, you're knowledgeable. Why don't you become an agent?" And that was when he he started to to become an agent. Now people really liked him anyway because. Um, he was diligent. He was forthright. He always asked questions of Bernard Tappy when he was the president of Marseille. And that was definitely not a given in those days, but he wasn't scared of him at all. And he got respect from Tappy because of that, because he asked him questions that he felt, um, I think sometimes Tappy felt that Duff didn't like him, but Duff always insisted, no, it's just my job to, to actually mm. ask, ask questions of you. Uh, and so that sort of established him really as a, as, as a man of, of, of standing. Now, um, it was interesting how the relationship with Joseph Antoine Bell had, had, had developed because um, because people would struggle to get hold of Bell when he was traveling about. They would often ring Pap Juff's house because there weren't mobile phones at the time and leave a message there. And that's what said to Bell, well, you know, maybe this is something that, that, that he could do. And, you know, you look at the sort of players that, um, Jeff picked up. It showed how trustworthy he was as a bloke. You know, he had uh, Basil Boli, uh, Marcel Desai, uh, the late Mark Vivian Foy was one of his clients. Abide Pele, the great Abide Pele was one of his clients. Um, Freddie Canuto, you get further down the line, he was Sami Nasri's first agent. He was Didier Drogba's agent. Um, mm. But it wasn't all, all um, black African guys or guys from black African families. He had a, a Gregory Coupe, Sylvain Armand, um, who, who, was, who was great for, for, for Nantes and, and, and Paris Saint-Germain. So he was someone who the community of footballers responded to really, really well. And this was what made him such a successful agent. The other thing that made him such a successful agent, he never signed a contract in his life. He was very clear from day one that he said to Joseph Antoine Bell, look, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it with a handshake because, uh, and his, his mate, Joseph Antoine Bell said to him, you know, you know that's, that's really the, the, the best way of doing it because that's what makes you stand apart. Because the, the reason he said to him, you should become an agent is not just because of you, your existing relationship with guys, but he said, people have a certain view of agents and they certainly had a certain view of agents back then in the nineties. And, he said, you can do it differently. I know you can do it differently. And he did do it differently. Yeah, amazing story. I mean, so it's just some of the players you've listed there, and then there's plenty that you haven't as well. It's a bit of a who's who of, of French football, really. And then, he, of course, he uses his contacts and his experience working with all these players and getting close to the club, uh, to, 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 to Marseille, and ends up becoming president, the first uh, black African president in French football, I believe, uh, and overseas... Yes quite an interesting period of time for them as well um and and not long after he's moved on they uh, he they 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 experienced some success that he undoubtedly laid the foundation stones for right well he did absolutely luke i mean he signed didier deschamps just before mm. he he was he was removed as, as as president of marseille and in his first season didier deschamps won the title back for marseille and the last time they'd won the title he was a player. So it was nearly 20 years b before that. It was, it was, what, 18 years before that, if you're, you're not counting the, 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 the title that was withdrawn from them in, in 1993 after the Jack Glassman scandal. Um, but I think when you look at the uh, spell in charge of, of, of Marseille, of, of, of Pap Duf, um, I think it's easy to look at it just in terms of the players. And to an extent, I'm, I'm not against that because... I mean, they went through in L'Equipe, I think, a best 11 of the Duff years. And, um, I mean, he signed Steve Mandanda, for example, who was 
really thought as just a jobbing goalkeeper up until that point, and he set him on the way to being a superstar. Um, the, the eleven they had it had uh, Abby Bay in it, uh, Nazri, who we mentioned before, uh, Frank Ribery, um, Gibral Cisse, Mamadou Nyong. It had loads of absolutely terrific players um, who, who became part of Marseille under him. Um, of course, they didn't quite get there in, in, in terms of trophies, although especially when Eric Gerrits was coach, it was an immensely exciting time. It was a time only when Leon were dominating league yeah. in there, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and he, he made them a, a threat again and they came within yeah. uh, three points of the title uh, one year. Um, but really, I think what has caused this huge outpouring of grief, um, both on social channels, of course, because we're all indoors at the moment, and because Marseille fans are among the most active, certainly in a a French football context um, at the moment. Um, But but also, we've seen banners um, around major buildings and thoroughfares and bridges in in Marseille, um, saying, rest in peace, Pat Jeff, and all that sort of stuff. Because even when he went, um, the fans really felt he was he was one of them. There were not many presidents, even presidents like Robert Louis Dreyfus, who was formerly um, part owner of Adidas, of course, and yeah, one of the best names for a, a president in world football as well. Yeah, it's magnificent. Yeah, Robert Louis Dreyfus is brilliant. <laughs> it sounds like a combination of like Julia Louis Dreyfus. Uh, feels like it's going to say Robert Duval at some point. It's just an amazing <laughs> name. Did, did his reputation live up to his name? Well, he poured so much money into to Marseille, of course. Um, whereas Dieuf wasn't a guy who was a, a, a massive benefactor. He was someone who was brought in as general manager and then was made president because of his skill with people. But mm. uh, as I said, this outpouring of grief in the city of Marseille um, after his death just goes to show that they really felt he was, he was one of them. And a lot of the banners have, have said that quite explicitly. And I think you have to um, understand the, the, the context of Marseille, not just as a football club, but as, as a city within France. I think you can compare it maybe to um, Naples in Italy or maybe yeah. even to, to, to Liverpool in, here in England uh, because um, the people sometimes feel a bit apart. They sometimes feel as if they're looked down upon, discriminated a bit um, against um, by uh, um, uh, an unfairly pilloried by other people in, in, in the country. And Pat Dioff, unlike most presidents, wasn't really bothered about his P's and Q's. And because he loved the city, because he arrived as a teenager, because from the moment he arrived in the city, he went to see Marseille every week. So before he was a journalist and after he was a journalist, he kept going to see them. Even when he moved back to Dakar, he kept on a little two-bedroom flat in the city so he could hop over and, and, and see them every so often. I think the last time he went to see them was um, uh, back end of last season when they when they, they played Nantes. And when he took uh, his, his taxi, he had to drop him off um, in a little park just next door to the velodrome. And he had to walk about 150 yards up to the stadium. And... It took him like 45, 50 minutes to do it because he was just getting mobbed the whole way. People it's like you walking around Wimbledon, mate. <laughs> yeah. It? It's like you going to, going to New Plough Lane in August. Yeah, that's 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 pretty comparable. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the thing is, it is, it is a genuinely remarkable story when you put it like that. Because and and you're absolutely right. I think to bring up the the, the profile and the and the soul and the spirit of Marseille as a city itself because it clearly is proud of being able to produce uh, these kind of stories <clears throat> excuse me and for a kid to come as a teenager to start watching marseille and to to, to essentially build his life there and achieve yeah. what he was able to achieve uh, is is really an incredible almost hollywood type story do you think do you think he could have could, could he have risen it's a difficult question to answer but could he have risen the way he rose at marseille anywhere else in france do you think um, I don't know if he could have. Um, yeah. And I, I, I think they found out pretty quickly what they got when they, they made him president because, mm. um, like I said, not only did um, people have the sense that um, 
they could deal with Marseille a little bit better because he was someone who was intensely relatable. And people are generally a little bit scared of Marseille because it's thought of as, you know, a volatile big city and a club that's a, a law unto itself. Now, I think at the same time, you have made them approachable, but also he stood up for what he saw as the, the values of the club and of the city. And mm. if he felt that, as we were saying before, um, they're being discriminated against by the FFF or other clubs, he would come out and say it. He would say, you can't treat us like this. You know, we deserve to be treated as as equals. And also, you look at the people he, he went toe-to-toe with. I mean, around the 2006 World Cup, you remember when Frank Ribéry really exploded after that brilliant season at, at Marseille. Yeah. And, you know, he became a vital player, didn't he? You remember that game against um, Spain he played where he really took off in the 2006 World Cup. And Leon, who, as you were pointing out before, Luke, were preeminent around then, um, were trying to sign him. And Ribéry was trying to go as well. And, Unlike um, him. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Extraordinary. What a surprise. Um, but, you know, you thought it felt because Leon were Leon of the time that it was inevitable. But Pap Diouf was absolutely not having it. And he just went toe-to-toe with Jean-Michel Olas, the most powerful guy in French football at the time. And he said, look, you ain't going to mug us like this, basically. Mm. Get out. And yeah. he, managed, he managed to keep him. And then he ended up selling him on to, to, to Bayern when he wanted to for you know, a fair chunk of change a little bit down the line for a guy that signed for nothing when his contract with Galatasaray fell apart, of course. So that was a huge profit to the club, something that Marseille have not been able to consistently do, really, make make the most of their of their playing assets. Of course, there was, there was also this other episode um, later in 2006 with um, Paris Saint-Germain, where they, they or more specifically, Jeff had this dispute uh, with with Paris because at the time Paris Saint Germain were having quite a lot of security issues uh, around the, the the Parc de Princes, and he felt that the away fans, uh, the Marseille fans, had a not been given a big enough allocation, and b their security hadn't been guaranteed. It's so fascinating story about the, about sending the reserves, right? Yeah, they yeah. They, they they sent they sent the, the the reserve team, but the reserve team, which is made up of basically apprentices and amateurs on the whole. And um, so he, he sends them along as this incredible act of, of, of defiance for Le Classique, which is the biggest game in France, uh, the Parc de France. And, you know, if, if they end up losing two or three nil and put up a, a good show, he's made his point and, you know, fair enough. They get a nil-nil draw yeah. and they celebrate on the pitch at the end as as if they've won the World Cup. And it's just such an immense vindication for him. But it was the way as well that he got involved with supporters clubs. It's just the little things. It's not just the grand gestures. Um, you know, there was a, a story that came up in, in the last day or so um, about a, a lady whose uh, husband was part of a, a supporters club in the north. And he was um, killed in a, a traffic accident on the on the way to a, a game where Marseille were playing at Laaf, just down the road from from where this, this guy lived. And um, Pat Jeff called her all the time, said, do you need anything? He uh, turned up personally at, at the funeral. Um, when um, supporters traveling Marseille supporters had problems at other places like Atletico Madrid when they're in Europe he got stuck in he, he got involved and he made sure they were all right he was someone who really you know felt and and breathed the city and breathed the club and he understood that everyone involved was important not just other directors not just star players but everyone all the people who came to the velodrome were important to him mm. And uh, that's well said. And I, and I really like this, uh, just to finish off on on, on Pap Diouf, I like this. Um, there was an article written by Eric Devon in The Guardian today. <clears throat> yeah. where, and I like I liked the way it finished, obviously, him talking about Diouf. He said, his death is one of many in the world at the moment, but for a man whom race, class or social standing were no obstacle and for whom no opponent seemed too big, it is only fitting that we note the passing of Pap Diouf by honouring him for what he was, a principled, fearless and forthright individual whose ambitions and influence on the game knew no limit. 
Um, nice fitting uh, end to that obituary to him by Eric Devlin in the Guardian. There, yeah, I mean, all the best and, and, and condolences to his his family and his friends at what is a really difficult time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This episode of the Football Ramble is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life throws many different challenges at us, and as a result, we all have our own sources of stress. Whether big or small, those stresses can impact our lives in unpredictable ways, and if we don't address them, they can have an outsized and unwanted impact. Therapy is a safe place in which we can address these issues, learn to understand them, and find ways to work through them. Having therapy can be beneficial to anybody, not just people who've experienced major traumas, even if you may have not considered it before. It could be simply a time for you to get things off your chest, a way to learn positive coping skills or how to set boundaries. Ultimately, it can be whatever you need it to be. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and BetterHelp will match you to a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash ramble today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash ramble. Okay, Andy. Next, I thought we'd speak about um, the, the one of the big, sadly, one of the big stories of, of of this football age. While there's no football actually happening, we joked, didn't we, a week or two ago that um, we'd end up turning this show into a soap opera, talking about gossiping owners and um, people sending broadsides to each other, trying to score political points while there's no football to be concerned with. And and this issue that appears to be rearing its head um, now is not just the one of when football will return, because that's clearly a bit far away on the horizon. It's about um, finances. It's about player wages. It's about how you get to the situation where you where football clubs can still tolerate these regular heavy outgoings with no income uh, on, on match days at the moment. And as we'll find out in just a moment, no bro- potentially no broadcasted revenue either. Now, we've seen people listening who are based in the UK will have seen that um, a few clubs in the Premier League have started to take advantage of the government's furloughing scheme, which has caused a bit of controversy for a number of dis- different reasons we perhaps won't get into on this show because we like to focus on European football. Um, but while two um, European giants have made some steps themselves. Lots has been made about Barcelona, um, who Leo Messi again used it as a as a as a great opportunity to have a, a side swipe at the decision makers at the club, saying um, they put pressure on the players to do something we were always going to do anyway. 
um, talking about Barcelona and his players taking a huge pay cut. And there's been an interesting situation in Juventus as well. Uh, Giorgio Chiellini has been reported, has been at the forefront of negotiating salary deferments for Juve players, totaling around 90 million euros. Uh, it's expected the players will probably claw around half of that back post the summer, all being well. I mean, worth worth remembering that Chiellini himself is out of contract in June and hasn't mm. played much this season due to an ACL injury, although he is expected to sign an extension. What do you make of this, Andy? What do you make of the way these big clubs are starting to come out of the woodwork and start to make plans for how they deal with this financial fallout? Um, well, I think it's very, very important when it comes to, to, to Barcelona, certainly, because they run at such monstrous overheads. Uh, they needed to do something. A 70% um, cut is huge though, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And we have to say it's not just a 70% cut. It's actually a 72% cut because right. uh, the players are putting in an extra 2% each as well um, to cover the wages of everyone who works at the club to make sure they're paid in full um, during the, 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 the time that the, the football's off. So um, I think the optics of it are very, very interesting. Uh, as, mm. as you were saying, um, Messi is just so full of rage, belatedly, I would say, with the way mm. the club has run. You know, mm. uh, there's a lot of people out there who have been worried that the club has been wasting his peak for the best past of fi- part of five or six years. Um, and in in the last year or so, he's just become so angry with them that if they, a member of the board at Barcelona presented Messi with a brand new 500 euro note, he'd probably look at it, check the other side and say, well, it's a bit curly at the edges, isn't it? You know, <laughs> it, it's, it's just so, I think, dubious of their, their, their motives now. And um, he's certainly dubious of the way they present stuff in a, in a PR sense. I mean, they, they had arguments over how Abidal talked about the, um, the, the, the sacking of, of Valverde and the appointment of, of, of Setien and um, yeah, Andy, just to cut on that. Not- what, sorry, just to, just to cut in very quickly because I'm interested in this. What is the relationship? Because Eric Abadal is one of the decision makers at the club at Barcelona mm. now. What is the relationship between Lionel Messi, who is of course an ex-teammate of his, and 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 and, and Eric Abadal? Because Abadal it was great. To- it was great. Right, because, is it soured because he had an amazing story yeah, and everyone seemed to rally around him and he was really popular. But is, is it is it is he put himself in a position now where they this, this, the, the the relationship between him and and some, maybe even some of the other players is completely broken down? Yes, yeah, totally untenable. And yeah. I, I think it says a lot about where Barcelona are that no real inc- conclusion has been reached on this matter. I mean, it seemed inevitable at the time that um, either Abadel had to climb down or leave probably leave and mm. it's, it's just reached this weird impasse but to say that Abidal the only problem that um, Messi has with the Barcelona board would not be correct at, right. at the same time I think it's a succession of straws breaking the camel's back really and maybe Messi's having one of these moments of clarity like god what have I put up with for for all these years you know, maybe he was just too busy getting on with his job to really think about it before. While other people around him were saying, you know, why are you putting up with this shit? I think, you know, his his sense has always just been to, to get on with the football. But maybe now he's a little bit further down the line. And maybe now, especially now with what's happening at the moment, I, I think he already had a sense of his footballing mortality. And... Um, now that's probably accentuated a little bit with with the current situation. Um, but yeah, the, the, the fact that they've come to verbal public blows, the, the, the two sides, and it's clear whose side the players are on, clearly. Um, the, the, you know, what was such an open and shut deal has become another public argument is extraordinary to me um yeah juventus's needs are, are somewhat different of course um because um as you said the fact that they're not going to be paid the players for march april may june as things stand and yes they may get some of that back further down the line depending um on if and when um football resumes in italy and i have to say certainly the way things are at the moment that is by no means a foregone conclusion um, mm. because in large parts of 
um, Italian football, Italian society, and Italian fandom, actually. Um, you had an ultra group from Atalanta saying, you know what, just write the season off because our city has lost too much mm. on a human level. And I think we can overlook that sometimes because, of course, we're so... Um, anxious many of us to, to, to give us something to look forward to especially in these times that we want football to, to 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 restart i think it's difficult to put yourselves in the shoes of the italians and what they've actually been through on a human level and of course there will be some people who who want it to restart and and you know bring back some joy to to, to the country and all that sort of stuff it's you know a very um you know, it's a very obvious thing to say, isn't it? On the on the other hand, I think this this to me felt like something quite significant. The idea that a supporters group and an ultras group would say that okay, from a sporting perspective, we stand to lose quite a lot because we're having our greatest ever season on the pitch. We got to the quarterfinals of the Champions League. Um, we're in the top four, and we're likely to to stay there. And you know, as we've discussed on many occasions, Luke, you know, Atalanta are a a genuine member of the top clubs of, of Italy now, certainly above um, Milan and, and on current form above uh, Napoli and, and Roma as well. Um, but f- for a group of hardcore supporters to say, you know what, we, we actually don't give a shit about this. Th- th- this isn't important in the, in, in the general um, flow of life at the moment. Yeah, that the reason it felt like quite a big moment. Yeah, the reason it's powerful is because it completely um, blows out of the water the idea of any kind of self-interest being at the forefront of an opinion. Exactly. So, <clears throat> that stands out, isn't it? Exactly. If you look at the opinions of, of, of pretty much, not everyone, but most people, if they've been whether they've been briefing off the record to people like our friend David Ornstein or whether they've been publicly saying what they've been saying, and I'm talking about based in, in this country, it has been met with a howls of, of uh, and accusations of, of self-interest. And, and that's probably to be expected, particularly when it initially starts. Mm. And then when the dust starts to settle and there'll be a few twists and turns along the way um, before we settle on what is a solution that's not going to be happy for everyone. I mean, there's, there is no solution to this that makes everyone happy. And I think people need to make their peace with that. But for the Atalanta supporters group to say that, I think is a very, very powerful thing to say. And what it does is it throws into pretty stark focus how badly that part of Italy has been affected um, by by this virus. But, but one thing that uh, this, whether it be about, the, the return of football or whether it be about the, the deferral or cut of wages among players and how clubs approach that. What it's actually made quite clear to me is something I've felt for a, for a wee while now is that the leadership shown at the top of the game is is very, very lacking. I mean, what, what makes me uncomfortable and, and we talked about this in a slightly different context in the past and we talked about it in the context of, of players being racially abused. Uh, while they're trying to play football. Uh, and to me, it feels like it shouldn't be incumbent upon the players to be show the leadership here. Uh, yeah. I feel like at the top of the game, there are decision makers, whether they be FIFA, UEFA, the relevant leagues or whatever. There are decision makers who should be making these decisions because it can't be done in a piecemeal way by groups of players or individual clubs, whatever, whatever the issue, if it's a big issue that crosses that threshold where it affects everything in the game, it needs to be done and needs to be made with the proper advice taken, of course, by the relevant stakeholders, but it needs to be made by the associations. They need to show the leadership on it. There was a really interesting piece yesterday um, about Daniel Levy and his his taking advantage of the government's furloughing scheme, which created a lot of criticism. And, and someone said, look, is he actually just trying to force a, a debate about this, a solution to this that, that, that is taken across the board by all the football clubs in the Premier League, for example? That's very charitable to him. Well, I, th- I think I think it's I think it probably comes from a place of trying to defend him, and I don't know if I don't necessarily agree with it. But what I'm saying is the principle is is ultimately sound, which is you cannot confuse the fact that because players are the most high profile people in this industry, 
if it is a big issue that needs to be solved universally, it needs to be solved by the big decision makers at the top of the club, at pop top of the game. So, for, for, so that's why I don't really have an awful lot of, of sympathy with Lionel Messi on this particular issue in 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 isolation. I know he's got his problems with Barcelona. I know they're probably pretty well founded. I know he's frustrated. But it isn't for him to say, oh, well, the players were going to do this anyway. Well, it's not really the player's decision, or it shouldn't be. It should be done with the agreement of the players, with the input of the players, but the decision should be taken by the association. In no other industry I can think of do individual people or individual high-profile people in that industry see have, have to be the ones who make these decisions. And the reason it's relevant to something like racism is, oh, well, the players should just walk off the pitch. Fine, I've got no problem with that, really, but it shouldn't have got to that stage and it shouldn't be incumbent upon them to have to make those decisions. Do you understand what I mean? I do understand what you mean, but I think whereas in principle, that's a very sound way of looking at it. Uh, the, the reality is um, that in many cases, uh, players and their brands are more influential than the clubs themselves nowadays. So uh, for them you to... You could argue that's been allowed to happen because the associations themselves haven't got grip on the whole thing anyway. Yeah, you, you could in this particular instance. Um, but what you could also argue is that because the players in many cases are bigger than the clubs, certainly in terms of brand projection, um, them coming out and saying something is, is more effective. In a, in, a, in a public and civic way, so in that sense, I'm 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 not really against it. Going back to the Juventus thing, I'm I'm really interested to to get into this um, because yeah, I, I think like you, I, I believe Chiellini will will stay, and I think it will make a lot of sense. And certainly, in a week where we've seen this renewed speculation around the future of Matthias de Ligt, and I would be very very surprised if Juventus were to sell him and despite the fact he's had not an ideal start to, to his career um, a season of him playing alongside Chiellini could be worth so much to Juventus and I think that has been the main thing that has been missing from uh, De Ligt's adaptation uh, to Serie A so far I think it's something that could really help him and really help them um, going forward the other thing is we've seen reports in Italy this week saying maybe Juventus could be forced to sell Cristiano Ronaldo, even with this 90 million, um, well, it's maybe not a 90 million saving overall, but at least deferral for the, for, for the moment of, of these wages. Because, you know, the minute they signed Cristiano Ronaldo, it changed the model and direction of Juventus because yeah. um, it's such a huge financial pressure on them, not just in terms of fee and signing on fee, but obviously these enormous wages as well. It's said that we're all in for the Champions League right now, which hasn't happened for the moment. Of course, that doesn't mean it, it, it won't happen, maybe even in the, in the near future, depending on how this Champions League season uh, finishes. Um, but there were suggestions in one of these articles from Italy about how this might be brought to a conclusion that either Juventus would sell Cristiano Ronaldo, um, that they would um, reduce his wages on a permanent basis or just simply not extend his, his, his contract, which is up in, in, in two years. But I think... Mm. Whether this is true or not, I think it's a, a strong recognition of the fact that, you know, he is a financial pressure on them that, you know, they've never had before. And they'll probably never have again, to be perfectly honest, because signing a player for that amount of money well into his 30s, we know he's an exceptional case. Um, it's still something really huge for the club to to have to deal with and it changes the way that they do things. Um, it put a lot of pressure on them last summer when they needed to sell more players and they weren't able to do that. And this squad, there's no way they can keep together all the elements going forward. The fact that they've got, uh, they're on the hook for not just Cristiano Ronaldo's money, but Dybala's money, uh, Iguain's money and all the other players in the squad. They can't keep this squad together um, going forward. And, you know, I think for them to at least consider or explore the possibility of doing something about their financial obligations to Cristiano Ronaldo is 
it's, it's far from unreasonable. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. And I think it, what it also throws up is the idea that this whole thing is going to change football in a huge number yeah, of ways. Exactly. Just, just quickly, just to throw further weight behind your point, Ricky Alini and Delict. I think Kalini got injured around September time, didn't he? And Delict yeah. signed in the summer. So, so I think it's been quite overlooked how um, important that would have been. I mean, I, I dare say it might have even been a factor into why Delict signed for Juventus that he might have been able to play alongside and learn from you know a 35 year old veteran of some standing who, who's clearly of such good quality and experience. He's not been able really to do that much at all yeah mate if if you're saying like that Bonucci is a selfish partner in a way that Chiellini (laughs) isn't you you go ahead and say that I'm not going to stop you I'm a selfish lover yeah yeah (laughs) Chiellini's a generous lover but but on the on the um on the Cristiano thing uh, and and really Cristiano is in in many ways is an extreme example of of football's excesses uh, generally, isn't he? And I was really interested, actually, in in what Simon Jordan was saying, the ex-Crystal Palace owner on the radio last week. I, I think he's an excellent pundit, particularly on this kind of um, this kind of issue around yes. finances and, and organisation and administration and stuff. And um, he was actually saying that the way football deals with this issue, the way players deal with their wages, the way the clubs handle the finances, the way the broadcasters do what they're going to do, is probably a bit of a um, a bit of a fork in the road for football generally. And people need to understand. I'm, I'm hoping I'm not putting words in, his, words in his mouth or paraphrasing him, but what I took from it was that he was saying that people need to understand that the decisions that are made now in football will probably ring throughout the next 20, 30, 40 years in terms of the direction the sport takes. And it's 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 been clear for a while that football's been moving away from being this relatable thing. I think it was... Um, I interviewed Ben Turner from Sunderland Till I Die um, yesterday, and he was saying that, you know, football is a working-class game that's now loved by the middle classes, but it used to just be this relatable thing, and these players are used to live among... Um, for want of a better phrase, everyday people. And it's not been that for a while. And and football could do a great job here of repairing its reputation in this way with the communities that it, it purports to represent based on this crisis. Um, and I wonder whether it might get to the point where they don't have a choice. And the reason I say that is because at the start of this particular section, I, I alluded to the idea that... Um, broadcasters might have a have a, have a have a role to play in this and the reason i said that is because two main broadcast the two main broadcasters in france the french equivalent of sky sports and bt have said as things stand we can't imagine football happening anytime soon so we're not going to pay you the latest portion of the revenue you're due um and that could have absolutely seismic consequences if that's repeated throughout europe couldn't it yeah, it could. And do, do you know what? I don't think it's completely beyond the realms of possibility because I think we all know, and anyone who takes an even slight interest in broadcasting rights knows that broadcasters have been pay- overpaying for football for a, a very long time in a, a quite unsustainable way. I mean, I remember someone um, from a major European football broadcaster saying to me that their channel, not that long ago actually, that their channel couldn't afford to have the rights but couldn't afford not to have the rights as well. And I kind of understand where they're they're coming from there. And, um, you know, you look at the situation, as you say, in in, in France with um, Canal Plus and now being sports who've, who've followed suit and said... Look, look, basically, we're we're not going to front up the last payment. Mm. The, the thing is that it, it's it's not just a principled stand. It is a bit Weatherspoons as well because, mm. in some cases, they're not paying for some matches that they've shown already. I mean, that's certainly right. the case. Um, with being like um, some of the money corresponds to fifteen live games that they've already shown. That's wrong. That's wrong. They shouldn't be doing that. They should. They yeah. should be doing it the principal way, and they should be paying for the stuff they've already shown. I completely yeah. understand and sympathise with the idea that look, we're not going to pay for a product we're not going to receive, and that can be sorted out by whatever the terms of the contract are. But if you've already shown some of the games, you've got to really be paying for that. Exactly. And the other, the other thing as well, we have to take with the Canal Plus side of it. And Canal Plus has been 
like Sky, as you were saying, the main broadcaster of, of French football for, for well over 20 years now. And like Sky, their whole brand is based on being the football channel and they're also now once again um the the holder of the the premier league rights now i believe this was why john cross brought brought it up in the mirror this week because um his view was not just on um the fact that broadcasters all over the continent were looking at to, to each other to see who was doing what and who was yeah, doing who was what in, link, in, in, yeah, in terms of their obligations and all that sort of stuff i think john was also looking at the fact that um how um, foreign rights holders and whether they would withhold money would uh, affect the Premier League because, of course, that's worth several billion pounds to the to the Premier League across all those those deals. Um, the, the the thing with Canal, as as we say, it's a huge part of of their personality being the the rights holder for the main chunk of the football. That's not going to be the case from next season. So. I am slightly cynical about this. When um, you got to the point where Canal are right, we're going to withhold the rest of the money. In most other situations, you'd say, well, you know, there's going to be some sort of middle ground here because, you know, they need a future relationship um, with the league. But Canal don't. You know, they already feel as if the league's, the league's totally sold them out, basically, mm-hmm. in um, selling the rights to... Um, a Spanish media company, in fact, who still have to form their own channel and work out the way that they're going to diffuse it from next season. I mean, I know there are a load of super complicated things that we're trying to work through about what will happen when next season, if next season happens, when it eventually starts, all that that sort of stuff. Um, Even if it had been a completely normal situation, things were very, very up in the the air in terms of, of French TV rights. But... In the short term, the league has got a massive problem because on average, 47% of clubs' income, not including transfers, is from TV. And then you bear in mind what they're not getting from match days. And, of course, the fact that if you take away some of the biggest clubs, like um, not just Paris Saint-Germain, but to to an extent um, uh, Lyon, Marseille, teams like that, that TV money will represent an even bigger chunk of of what they get. So it's, it's moving to a point we've been worried and quite rightly about lower division clubs in in this country and in other countries across Europe. This could mean that we're edging towards a, a problem where the majority of clubs in European football, and not just at low in a low division level, are in big financial trouble. <laughs> All right, um, let's end with a bit of uh, old-fashioned beef. Let's uh, let's do that. Bring the beef. Um, Come on. Yeah, bring on the bring on the beef. Um, we did joke, as I said at the start of the show. We did joke that this would this show this show would just descend into what someone said about someone else, and we were talking about presidents. Um, but now we're going to turn our attention to talking about players. Um, Karen Benzema has referred to himself as a Formula One car called Olivier Giroud a go-kart. Um, Olivier Giroud has responded by calling himself a World Cup winning go-kart, which is very <laughs> nice. And for those who don't remember, Benzema was left out of the World Cup squad in 2018. He hasn't played for France since 2015 after manager Didier Deschamps dropped him due to a formal investigation into a sex tape blackmail plot, if you remember that weird news. Um, What's the origin of this beef between the two players specifically, Andy? I know Karen Benzema's got a, a rap sheet as long as uh, anyone's arm, but what's the origin of the beef between these two? Because I, I instinctively always fall down the side of Olivier Giroud, who I absolutely love for a number of different reasons, but am I fair and right to do so? Well, what I would say is if you're going to be offended by anything that Karen Benzema's done, and th- this was in the course of a, 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 a pro-celebrity uh, Instagram live 
uh, questioning um, last Sunday. Um, and gets classier and classier. Yeah, I don't think Benzema has correctly respected the parameters of uh, Instagram Live questioning. Firstly, he wasn't wearing his club tracksuit like Serge Aurier. Uh, <laughs> secondly, he didn't have a shisha on the go. Uh, <laughs> there were no slurs against his his own teammates because he did play with Olivier Giroud once, but that was quite a long time ago. And I think he's actually scrubbed it from his mind because he finds mm. it such a, a, a traumatic thing. Um, you know what? Benzema, for someone who sees himself as a man of the people. And he's, he's a player I love and enormously respect. And, you know, I saw his first big season with Lyon at, at first hand when, when I lived there um, b- back in 2007, 2008. And, um, uh, uh, you know, it was one of the most exciting seasons of a player that, I, that I've ever seen at first hand. He was absolutely magnificent. But what I think is amazing is that, you know, in the intervening, like, 13, 14, 15 years, uh, so much has changed, and yet so little has changed. You know, he's someone who's um, international in his 30s. Uh, he's got a glittering career behind him. But he's just behaving like a brat here. And yeah. um, the, the thing is, I think he sees himself as the real you know, he sees himself as as, as this guy. He's he's, um, he's he's from the hood. He's not forgotten where he's from, and all all, the, all this sort of stuff. And uh, Giroud's not like him because you know he's uh, not as talented for one. And I, I think that is the big thing. And there is a snobbery in terms of. <clears throat> technical quality. Yeah, Karim, Karim Benzema also went on to say um, something along the lines of, we know um, what Giroud brings or we know the kind of football he likes to play and do people like that? I'm not so sure. Something like that, wasn't it? It was that kind of dig at the way he plays the game yeah, as well. And it's, it's a very reductive way of viewing yeah. what uh, Olivier Giroud brings to brings to the table. Um But I, th- I, think, I think it's more than that. I, I think it's a sense that, oh, well, you know, Olivier, Olivier Giroud's just traditional France. He's a, he's a bit posh. He's a qualified sommelier and all the rest of it. Whereas... Hang on, is he actually a qualified sommelier? Yeah, he is, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't know that. I, you see, the, the, the thing is, I, I think it's the wrong way around of, look, uh, of looking at it. Because if I was Giroud, and he's far too nice to say it, of course, I'd be thinking, well, you're a spoiled little academy brat who was always... Yeah. The, the, the family's little prince and always looked after on your way up through this like posh academy. Whereas, uh, you know, the, the preeminent academy in France and one of them in, in Europe, whereas me, I actually had to go and do a bloody proper job and, mm. and work hard to get into professional football. And, you know, bear in mind at, at the time when Karen Benzema had already scored against Manchester United in the Champions League, won a couple of Ligue 1 titles, um, signed his deal for Real Madrid and um, become a big star there. At that point, Giroud was still um, trying to make it. He hadn't even made it in the top flight. You know, he he was slogging away at Grenoble and it didn't look like he was going to get anywhere. It didn't even look as if he was going to play a top flight game, let alone make it as an elite level footballer. Um, Mm. So... This sort of inverse snobbery that Benzema's got against him, not just on a, a technical level, and that is something that is not just Benzema. I think it's it's France and French football, and a lot of French football supporters have had a lot of this snobbery about Giroud for quite a long time. I think that has changed a little bit post World Cup. Um, because people saw the selfless job that that he did. You know, people have never mentioned his um, his name in the same sentence as Stefan Kivash, who, by the way, did his bet in in '98, but Absolutely, not to yeah. the not to the same extent as as Olivier. And it was Giroud. a bit, by the way. I mean, yeah, that's called, you're right to say it was a bit. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he didn't score any goals, did he? Did he score one? I can't remember yeah, how many he scored. But he, he scored any? You know, you know what? It is about it is about public projection as well, and um, where I think uh, Giroud has had belated respect is from the fact that 
he's so publicly endorsed by Antoine Griezmann. And funnily enough, I think Benzema, if he really thought about it, could appreciate that because he's benefited so much from the endorsement of Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah. Loads of people have always thought that Benzema's, that Benzema's not good enough for Real Madrid, that he's not yeah. a genuine world-class striker. Now, of course, he could turn around and say, well, look, I'm the top scoring Frenchman in the history of the Champions League. I've won a load of swag since I've been here, including for Champions Leagues. But, you know, if people want to be deaf to that, they're going to be deaf to that. But he's doing exactly the same thing. I think, on the other hand, this sort of slight review of what Giroud is worth in French footballing society is to do with the fact that Griezmann has, like Ronaldo did with Benzema, or like uh, Eden Hazard did with Giroud when he was playing for Chelsea, he's gone to him, you're my guy. I need you. I need you to be my best for France. And I think that has really worked well for Olivier Giroud. But Giroud has played this smartly. Um, Maybe he's played it completely consistently with his personality. I don't know. but Because I don't know him that well personally. But I think the fact that he has just not said anything, I think is the best possible way he he can deal with this. Because... If, if he rolls around in the mud, all he's going to do is get dirty. And yeah. he is the World Cup winner. He is the person with, regardless of talent, the better international goal scoring record. He's, he's going to end up with more caps than him as well. All that yeah. sort of stuff. I mean, he's he's won the battle, if indeed it it is a battle. Now, Benzema could have been one of the greats for France, but for reasons... And reasons that he would say are not entirely his fault. And I do have some sympathy uh, for for that point of view. Um, he's someone who has, has, has not fulfilled his, his potential as a Absolutely. Father. And I think, you know, speak, speaking of being sympathetic to Benzema's point of view... I don't know as much about the situation as you, and I'll concede that. But from from a very on a very basic level, I don't know if I do have any sympathy with with Benzema. The situation that arose in 2015, and let's not forget, you know, this is these issues, these controversies, are things that have dogged Benzema pretty much his entire career, uh, and and the situation that arose in 2015, where he ended up no longer being picked for France, is because Deschamps thought that we could we could get on by. Without him, yes, he's a talented player. Yes, he plays at a top club. Yes, as you rightly say, Andy, he's won a lot of things. But we feel like we can get by without him. Now, that is the manager's choice. The manager lives and dies by that decision. But what happened? Well, France went on and won the World Cup. So that's been vindicated. Mm. Ultimately, I, I don't particularly have too much sympathy with players who kind of feel like oh, the game owes me this. The game owes me that. And through decisions through no fault of my own, I've not been given what's owed to me or I've not received this 100th France cap or I've not been part of the World Cup winning squad. I don't think he was... Well, I know he wasn't even part of Euro 2016 either. The reason that's happened largely is down to the decisions he's made himself. There are very, very few people who, who... and I would, I would probably just include serious injuries in this or serious kind of personal tragedies in this that don't have power at that level over their own decision-making and their own commitment to what they're doing. And Benzema, I'm afraid, gets very, very little truck from me with that kind of attitude because he's, 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 he's been throughout his career, mate. With Benzema, it's never been the talent. It's, it's been the other stuff. That's yeah. the thing. Um, but on... On the one hand, he's kind of built his image around the fact that I've never forgotten where I'm from, and you know I'm 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 still this I'm still this boy from the estates, which is fine. But then when the people who are around you get you into these situations, which is definitely what happened with the sex tape, you know you've got to take the rough with the smooth if you're presenting yourself like like that, haven't you? Yeah, careful with that. Um, I am. Um I think you're absolutely right. Look, Andy, in a in a in a in a in a word, are you in two words? Are you Team Giroud or Team Benzema? Look, it's a great line from Benzema. Uh, it might be unfounded, <laughs> unreasonable, unjustified, and I know you're going to be Team Giroud anyway. So I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll uh, stick with Benz. I think. 
All right, it's one all then. All right, thank you very much indeed for that, Andy. Thanks for your company as ever on, on the constant. Always love it. Always learn a lot as well. Um, don't forget that you can check back with Football Ramble Daily tomorrow for the gang and Marcus, Jim, Pete and I for the previous show. There'll be a Blizzard show on Saturday. Uh, that's all we've got time for here on the continent. But do, if you're looking for other stuff to listen to, do go and check out our Patreon patreon.com forward slash football ramble daily there's a uh, patron only shop there at the moment which is an interview by me with ben turner one of the creators of sunderland till i die that fantastic netflix documentary series which season two of has just dropped and season one's available for catch up it's a fascinating interview he's a big sunderland fan he talks about the labor of love that making sunderland till i die uh, was for him you can get hold of that if you're a patron subscriber you can also listen to loads of extra stuff including behind the scenes uh, audio extra mailbag shows with andy um there's a discord there to chat on as well um go and check it out if you get a moment and let's face it no one else is doing anything at all apart from listening to podcasts at the moment and watching Netflix. <laughs> so, no excuses all right andy thanks very much for your time thanks for your company look forward to speaking to you again soon and we'll be back tomorrow with the preview show have a great uh, rest of the day and go well this was a Stakhanov production. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.